Lord, help me in very limited time to take something quite complicated and make it very simple and make it very practical, very compelling. For the sake of the Lord Jesus Christ, amen. Turn with me, if you will, in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 16. Revelation chapter 16, and that's on page 1931. And looking at beginning at verse 19, Revelation 16, 19. The great city split into three parts, and the cities of the nations collapsed. God remembered Babylon the Great and gave her the cup filled with the wine of the fury of his wrath. Every island fled away, and the mountains could not be found. From the sky, huge hailstones of about a hundred pounds each fell upon men, and they cursed God on account of the plagues of hail, because the plague was so terrible. Reflect with me for a moment how we have just read back in Revelation 6, 14, about the sky receding like a scroll, rolling up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Okay? Revelation 6. Every island and mountain was removed from its place. And now what's happened when we go back to chapter 16 and read in verse 20, every island fled away and the mountains could not be found. What does that tell you? It tells you that this book repeats itself over and over and over again. In other words, what's happening in Revelation 16 has already happened in Revelation chapter 6. It means that we need to be very careful how we read this book. We don't need to read it as if it's an unfolding of history, because it's not. Most of this book, I'll save to talk about another time. But what you discover here is this. It repeats, and it repeats in a series of sevens. Where does the idea of sevens and sevenfold judgment come from? Turn with me, if you would, to Leviticus chapter 26. Leviticus chapter 26. And I wonder, has anyone ever thought about why Israel was sent into the Babylonian captivity for 70 years? Why? Jeremiah found out. Jeremiah, as he meditated on it, realized that God had warned Israel in Leviticus 26 of something that would happen. And that is if Israel failed to obey God's covenant, God was going to punish them with a sevenfold judgment. And what's interesting is that as Israel failed to keep the the Sabbath Jubilee. Remember that the whole structure of the Old Testament is built around the Sabbath. God created the world in six days, rested on the seventh. God created one day in seven to be a day of rest. God created one year in seven to be a year of rest when the land could lie fallow and become much better off. And God created one year at the conclusion of every seven 70 years to be a year of jubilee. What's that? It means all your debts are forgiven. It means that you get to return to the land that was given to your ancestors. 
Because the land belonged to God. It could never be sold permanently. It belonged to your family. Israel, had it obeyed God, would never have what we have in America today. Generational poverty. Because everybody got a fresh stand, a fresh chance every 50 years, the year of Jubilee. Now, did Israel keep that? Of course they didn't. And that's why they went into captivity for 70 years. That's the, that's the thing. But let's look here for a moment. Page 198, and we're just going to look at one of these, uh, starting at verse 27, Leviticus 26, 27. If in spite of this... You still do not listen to me, but continue to be hostile to me. Then in my anger, I will be hostile toward you. Who he's talking about? He's talking about his own people. He's talking about the children of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's talking about the Jewish people who came to be known as Jews because of the tribe of Judah. But he's talking to his covenant people who entered into a covenant with him at Mount Sinai. In 1446 B.C. That's who he's talking about. And he's warning them before they go into the promised land. If you don't do what I'm telling you you're going to do. I'm going to punish you. I'm going to take you out and whip you like you ain't never been whipped before. Sounds like somebody like a dad or granddad saying to a boy. you know. Anyhow. And he says I'm going to deal with you. You know it's interesting the prophet Amos says. Speaking to Israel, the northern kingdom, you only have I known of all the nations of the earth. Therefore, I am going to punish you for your sins. See, God singled out his own people for punishment. Notice the way it's worded here in Leviticus 26. He says... Verse 28, then in my anger, who is God angry at? He's angry at his own people. I will be hostile toward you, and I myself will punish you for your sins. How many times over? Seven times over. And it keeps going on that way. You see that theme throughout the 26th chapter of Leviticus. Let's keep reading. Boy, this is pretty rough here. You will eat the flesh of your sons and the flesh of your daughters. I will destroy your high places, cut down your incense altars, and pile your dead bodies on the lifeless forms of your idols, and I will abhor you. I will turn your cities into ruins and lay waste your sanctuaries, and I will take no delight in the pleasing aroma of your offerings. I will lay waste the land so that your enemies who live there will be appalled. I will scatter you among the nations and will draw out my sword and pursue you. Your land will be laid waste and your cities will lie in ruins. Then the land will enjoy its Sabbath years all the time that it lies desolate and you are in the country of your enemies. Then the land will rest and enjoy its Sabbaths. All the time that it lies desolate, the land will have rest it did not have during the Sabbath years. Now, I want you to ponder this for a moment. There are several things that stand out powerfully here. And uh, as, as you keep in mind what we've just read, I'd like you to turn over to Second Kings for a moment. Second Kings for a moment. And we'll pick it up at the verse. Uh, it, that's going to be on page 580. What I want you to notice that we've just read in Leviticus 26 is this. God's punishment 
for the people of Israel is in clusters of sevens. Clusters of sevens, sevenfold. And you see the whole structure of the Old Testament is in sevens. And seven in particular, we think of it as perfection in one way, but it's also perfection of judgment. It's like, you know what? If that didn't turn you around, and you should read part of Leviticus 26 earlier, uh, later on today, because this is saying, if you don't repent, I'm going to punish you sevenfold more. If you don't repent, I'm going to punish you sevenfold more. So you notice the theme of seven. You notice it has to do with judgment. You notice it has to do with judgment of the people of God. And notice one of the dreadful things you just read there. What were they eating for supper? They were eating their children. Now I want you to look at a passage here on page 580. And this is 2 Kings chapter 6 beginning at verse 24. And I want you to understand why things happen. God entered into a covenant with the nation of Israel. And there were terms. There were blessings if they would obey. And there were curses and judgments if they disobeyed. And so notice what happens here. This is 2 Kings 6, 24, and this has to do with the northern kingdom, the kingdom of Israel. Sometime later, Ben-Hadad, king of Aram, that's Syria, mobilized his entire army and marched up and laid siege to Samaria. There was a great famine in the city. The siege lasted so long that a donkey's head sold for 80 shekels of silver and a quarter cab of seed pods, notice the footnote, a quarter pod of dove's dung uh, for five shekels. What? I mean, that's poor. Dove's dung? There were seeds in there. Seeds in the dove's dung. And how much did dove's dove's dung sell for? Five shekels. What? Wow. My gracious. Verse 26. As the king of Israel was passing by on the wall, a woman cried out to him, Help me, my lord, the king. The king replied, If the Lord does not help you, where can I get help for you? From the threshing floor? From the wine press? Then he asked her, what's the matter? I think verse 27 is very interesting. Now remember, what's happening here is the judgment of Almighty God. God Almighty caused this to happen. Why? Because the people disobeyed God. These were the special people. These were the people in covenant with God. And because they were in covenant with God, he singled them out for this. And notice what's, what the, this is always interesting when you look at a decent translation like this. The woman cries out, help me, my Lord, the king. And that's the ordinary Hebrew word for master, or Lord, or sir, Adonai. And then the king replied, if the Lord, he's using God's divine name, Yahweh. If Yahweh does not help you, where can I get help from you? So when he asked her, what's the matter? Look at what she answers. She answered, This woman said to me, Give me your son so we may eat him today, and tomorrow we'll eat my son. 
So we cooked my son and ate him. The next day I said to her, give up your son so we may eat him. But she had hidden him. Wow, what? That's one of the covenant curses. That's one of the covenant curses. In fact, as those covenant curses are spelled out in the second giving of the law, after all the people that disobeyed God in the wilderness had died off, and they're about to enter the promised land, and you have the second giving of the law, Deuteronomy. In Deuteronomy 28, it spells this out really clearly. It says the woman who's in the junior league and the man that's in the rotary club well, it says the refined and delicate person who won't even put their foot on the ground because of delicateness. In other words, think of the most refined people you know. They will be jealous and they won't share the baby they're killing and eating. Deuteronomy 28, the best people, the cream of the crop. Wow, the best people, the cream of the crop. They're going to eat their own children. Why? It's a curse. And you see his answer to that. When the king heard the woman's words in verse 30, he tore his robes. As he went along the wall, the people looked, and there underneath he had sackcloth on his body. Now notice who he blames. What do you blame when things don't go well? You blame the preacher. Now that crazy preacher today at Robinson Road talked about the finest people in Texarkana eating their own children. What? Well, notice what he says. As the people looked up, there underneath he had sackcloth on his body. King knew what was going on. Sometimes leaders know what's really going on, but they're afraid to tell you because they don't want to create a stampede. They don't want to create a panic. But he knew, and what's he doing? Under his beautiful royal robes, he's wearing sackcloth. What does sackcloth do to your body? It scratches it all up. It ain't comfortable at all. I don't know, personally, because I've never worn sackcloth, and I don't plan to, but hope it never gets that bad. So anyhow, notice what he says in verse 31. May God deal with me, be it ever so severely, if the head of Elisha, son of Shaphat, remains on his, heads today, on his head, shoulders today. He's blaming the prophet. Why is he blaming the prophet? Here's why. Because the prophets, if you want to understand the gist of the whole Old Testament, this is it. God entered into a covenant with his people at Mount Sinai. And whenever they violated the terms of that covenant, God brought a lawsuit against them. And who prosecutes or announces the lawsuit? The prophets do. Basically, the entire prophets, all of the major prophets and some of the minor, are about announcing to the people, you're in terrible trouble because God is mad with you and he singled you out to invoke on you the curses of the covenant spelled out in Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28. And that's why the king is angry. It's just like Jezebel and Ahab were angry at Elisha's mentor, Elijah. They wanted to kill him. They want to kill him. Why? Because here's the basic truth about reality about everyone in the world. Everybody on this planet knows there is a God. 
It's undeniable. No one can look at the order of creation and deny the reality of the existence of God. Not only that, it's not only the external data, it's what's within us. Human beings of all the animals are unique because we were created in the image of God. And what does that mean? It doesn't mean that God has five fingers uh, on one hand and five on another and ten toes. And it doesn't mean that we look like God. It means that we have the character of God embossed or stamped in us so that we know the truth. Let me tell you, anyone who tells you an atheist is a liar. But who is he lying to? First and foremost, he's lying to himself. Just like the little boy whose mother says to him, Boy, when your daddy gets home and he wants to pretend that daddy doesn't exist because he knows when daddy comes home, he's going to get a whipping. And let me tell you, every single human being on this planet, from the upper regions of the Amazon where they've never had a Bible, to the middle of the most atheistic countries in the world, which used to be Albania. What? Everybody knows that there's a God. And they not only know there is a God, a prime mover, a first cause, a ground of our being, or whatever. They know the true God. Do you know that every single solitary soul on our planet knows the true God? What do they do with that knowledge? They push it away. No, I'm not going to think about that. Don't tell me that. And so everything that is inside of an actual human being tells him there is a God. The God who is judges sin and is going to judge his sin. And that's why people deny God. That is the one and only reason they deny God. They can look at the world and something tells them the true God created this. It also tells them something else. The world that we live in is not the way God created it to be because sin has corrupted the entire planet. This planet is under the judgment of God and the blessing of God. So every man on earth knows that. What does people not know? People don't know what we can only learn from special revelation, and there we're talking about the Bible, and that is the gospel. The whole world knows there's a God who is coming to judge the world. But what they don't know is what you and I know and what we have an obligation to share with everyone we possibly can. And that is God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. So all men everywhere know the true God. And they know the true God is angry at our planet and at them individually, and they know he's coming to call them to account for all the things they've done. But what they don't know is the gospel, because that's not revealed in nature. It's only revealed in scripture, and that's our obligation. Very quickly, I just want to mention that what we have described in 2 Kings chapter 6 is repeated over and over and over again in the history of God's people. What they had happened there under uh, the siege of Samaria happened big time in 722 B.C. when the Assyrians surrounded the city of Samaria and people were eating their children wholesale then because there was nothing else to eat. If you're going to pay five shekels for 
a little bit of dove's dung because it has seed pods in it undigested. Wow, it happened in 722. What happened to the southern kingdom in 586 when Babylon put the city of Jerusalem under siege? The city fell. But before it fell, people were cooking and eating their children. The cream of the crop, the best of the best, the aristocrats, the elite, the power brokers, they were killing and eating their own children. And you know what happened? In the year 70 A.D., when the armies of Rome surrounded Jerusalem and finally took the city, people were cooking and eating their children then. It's happened throughout history. History repeats itself. Bible prophecy repeats itself. And this is a key to understanding the book of Revelation is that God's sevenfold judgment on Israel was about to happen. Now again, I want to close with simply saying this. The world knows the existence of the true God. They know about God in a way they cannot deny, but they repress, suppress that truth and unrighteousness. But what they don't know is something that you and I know, and that is, again, the gospel. Our world is, is, is sliding into hell before our very eyes. I mean, it really is. We're that close to nuclear war. Am I wrong? And you know, television is full, full of scenes that were just like what happened in Baghdad about 20 years ago. But people don't remember history. Everything you say about Mr. Putin, you could say about Mr. Bush. I saw a film of a woman in Baghdad as her house was being blown to smithereens by America's missiles saying, God curse them. God burn their houses up. God bring this destruction on them. What am I saying? If we really understand history, there are no good guys. There really are no good guys. In the conflicts of this world, all nations do brutal things to each other. They all do. Am I a, an apologist for what's happening in, in Ukraine from Russia? No, of course not. Of course not. I'm simply saying when the books are open and what we read about and when we read about the world leaders calling for the rocks and the hills to cover them, when every island and hill flees away, you're going to see the generals. You're going to see the generals in the Roman days. You're going to see the generals throughout the history of the world. The great men, the kings, the politicians, the presidents, the premiers. Ain't nobody going to escape, dear ones. Nobody's going to escape. Why are they calling on the hills and mountains to fall on them and hide them from the one who sits on the throne and from what an image? Have you ever seen a lamb full of wrath? Of course not. 
The irony of that image is terrible. But who is the Lamb? The Lamb is the one who was slain. The Lamb is the Lord Jesus Christ who shed His blood for you and for me that we might know the true God, that we might have our sins forgiven. Remember on that day, that great day, when they call on the hills and the rocks to fall on and cover them from the one who sits on the throne in the wrath of the Lamb? Nobody's spared. We all wring our hands at that day and say, it's not my brother, not my sister, but it's me, O Lord, standing in the need of prayer. We don't get to heaven because we've been good people, noble people, people who were brave and this, that, and the other. The only way to go to heaven is the news that we need to share with the nation. We've a story to tell to the nations. We haven't done a very good job. But that story for Christians is visibly portrayed in the Lord's Supper. Because the Lord's Supper tells us something that we can't get from nature. We can't look in the skies and figure this out. Because the gospel isn't something you can figure out. How could an angry God, the kind of God who decreed the kinds of judgments spelled out in Leviticus 26 and Numbers 28... How could such a God as that be willing to come into this world, our world, and take on himself a true human nature and then die on the cross in our place? That doesn't make sense. The gospel is something that doesn't make sense. But you know what? The same God who wrote his law and his existence into the heart of every human being bears witness with their spirits when the truth is presented through the scriptures, in the proclaimed word and in the eaten word. May we turn from our own self-righteous rags and cast ourselves on God's mercy in Christ one more time as we eat God's word in the Lord's Supper. May we pray. Lord, would you take these words that warn us of a coming day a day that has repeated itself over and over and over again in the history of Israel and Judah and throughout history. A day when human beings realize they're without hope. When in a foretaste of hell, people experience fire on the earth. Terrible things, earthquakes, shattering things. Lord, would you give us to flee to Jesus one more time here today, shaking off the rags of our own self-righteousness and putting our trust solely in the Lord Jesus Christ, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who loved us and gave himself up for us for Jesus' sake.